Well, a couple of weeks ago, um, I was invited to go back and meet with our kids in the Iwana program. On Wednesday night, we had this Iwana program, and we had something called Popcorn with the Pastor. So they, they had me when they said popcorn, and um, it was free popcorn. We sat around in a circle and ate popcorn, and they got to ask questions. And I'm glad that I was given the questions before I got there because they were some tough questions. We have some sharp kids in our church, and I'm glad they're in here with us today. We have some sharp kids, and, and a couple of them I had to look up before I went back there because uh, they were kind of tough. Um, and we went back there, and I answered these questions, and one question was just brilliant. I thought well, one little boy, I think he was either maybe fourth grade or something like that, he asked the question, why is the resurrection so important? I mean, what's the big deal? We got this Easter, we got this Resurrection Sunday that we're celebrating. Why is it so important? Well, I want to give you some of the reasons it's important. I'm not going to give all of them to you. I've got about a dozen of them in my complete set of notes, but I'm going to give you three reasons why the resurrection is important. The number one reason is the resurrection is important because it means Jesus is alive. Right on the very first day when the women went to the tomb, they run into these angels, and the angels say, Luke 24, verse 5, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. The resurrection means that Jesus is alive. We don't serve a dead God. We serve a risen, living, reigning Jesus, and that means he's present with you. The risen Jesus said in Matthew 28, before he ascended into heaven, these words, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. See, Jesus is alive and he's with us and that means no matter where we are or what we are going through, he's there. There is no place and no time that he is not with you and that means he can help you because he's alive and he's with you. I heard a story one missionary told, uh, I think he was in West Africa and uh, he led this gentleman to the Lord and the guy went back to his home to tell his family that he had become a follower of Jesus and when his family asked the question, why in the world would you become a follower of Jesus? His answer was classic. He said, well, let me put it this way. Let's say we're out in the bush and we're walking down a trail in the bush and it comes to a, a, a fork in the road and we don't know which way to go. Do we go left? Do we go right? We don't know. And at the fork in the road, there's two people, one living, one dead. Which one would you ask for directions? It's a good question. See, Jesus is alive, and that means he can help us today. A dead Jesus doesn't help you. And that's a, what a lot of people actually had. That's the God of religion, the guy who said some cool stuff 2,000 years ago, but he's not alive today to give you the power to actually live what he told you to do back then. And that's what we have today. We have a lot of times where we have people who are trying to act like a Christian instead of being one. That's why for a lot of our kids are really struggling because we're expecting them to act like a Christian without the power of being a Christian. And, and, and rules without power is nothing more than advice. And that's not what we have in the gospel. What we have in the gospel, we, there are some rules, but what we have is the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but a righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. It's, a mat, it's not a matter of talk, it's a matter of power. And we have that. So why is the resurrection so important? Because it means Jesus is alive. Number two, it means Jesus conquered death. This is great. When I was a kid, one of my favorite stories was by Rudyard Kipling called The Jungle Book. Has anybody ever read The Jungle Book by Rudyard Kipling? Okay, a few of you. Okay, how many people saw the cartoon? Raise your hand if you saw the cartoon. All right, way more of you. Okay, so we don't read as many books as we watch cartoons. That's okay. No judgment here. 
But in that book, there's this classic scene where Mowgli, who's the man cub, he asks the other animals, he says, uh, who's the most feared thing in the jungle? And he's told that, that when two animals meet on a narrow path, that one has to step aside and let the other pass. The animal that steps aside for no one would be the most feared thing in the jungle. So he wonders, Mowgli wonders what that might be. Would it be an elephant? I mean, you don't think an elephant's going to step aside for many things. Would it be a lion? Like a lion's probably not going to step aside for very many things either. And as he's wondering about this, the wise old owl says, the most feared thing in the jungle is death. It steps aside for no one. And of course he's right. Death is the one enemy that eventually gets us all. We all are going to die one day. Death steps aside for no one. Except that it did for Jesus. Revelation 1 verse 16, Jesus said, I am the living one. I was dead, but death stepped aside. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and hell. Who holds the keys of death and hell? The living one, Jesus. Death stepped aside for Jesus. And that means he's the most feared thing in the jungle. And that means he's got the power to save me. Not even death can hold me now. You ever thought about this? Jesus ruined every funeral he went to in the Gospels. I mean, they're trying to honor the dead person. Jesus raised them back to life. You know, the widow on the road to Nain, you know, her, she's got her son there, and they're doing a processional, a funeral processional, and Jesus interrupts it and raises the dude from the dead. Lazarus has been dead for days, you know, and they've been mourning for days. Ruined all of it. Raised them back to life. Listen, one day, he's going to reverse every funeral for every believer in him. Think about that. Think about that. Every funeral for a believer is temporary. It's just temporary. It's like when our kids were, were young and we put them to bed and, and we'd say something like, hey, I'll see you in the morning when the sun comes up. There's coming a day when the sun, S-O-N, is going to come up and he's going to ruin every funeral for every believer in him. And we've had some good ones at New Life. Boy, have we had some good funerals. And he's going to ruin every single one of them. Why? Because when it comes to death, when it comes to Jesus, even death steps aside. And here's the good news. Since death stepped aside for Jesus, those of us who are in Christ, one day it's going to step aside for us too. That's why the resurrection is so important. But it's not just that uh, the resurrection is important um, because Jesus conquered death and Jesus is alive, but it's also important because it means Jesus is Lord. See, this was central to the earliest church's preaching of the gospel. Jesus is Lord. Day one, the church is born. Day of Pentecost, Peter gets up and he preaches these words. Acts 2, verse 32. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Therefore... Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Well, I love it. You killed him. God overturned the verdict. God raised him from the dead. God exalted him. Now he's at Lord. He's in charge. That must have been a scary day for those guys. Can you imagine? You killed him. God raised him from the dead. I mean, you killed the sucker. What are you going to do to him now? And here's what's scarier, he's the one in charge now. 
At the very next chapter, Peter does it again. When they raise this guy who's been crippled from birth, there's a, there's a miraculous healing. Peter starts preaching Jesus again. He says this, chapter 3, verse 15 of Acts, you killed the author of life. You killed him. But God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this fact. See, the fact that he is risen and he is Lord means that in the end, he's going to put everything right. Every wrong is going to be made right. I mean, just think of this. Think of it this way. What is the worst thing imaginable? The worst possible thing imaginable that we could conceive would be if the all-good, all-loving, creative God who made us, the same guy who gives us every breath when we breathe it, if that guy came to earth as one of us and we killed him. That would be the worst thing imaginable. We call it Good Friday and it happened. But guess what? Because of the resurrection, the meaning of Good Friday got reversed. And it went from being the worst possible thing imaginable to the greatest thing that has ever happened in history. Because it means on that Good Friday, he bore my sin. He won my salvation. I got forgiven on that day. And beyond just me and you, it began the renewal of all things. Meaning, you guys, that all of the bad things that have ever happened in your life will be reversed. There's coming a day. Every bad thing that's ever happened to you is going to be reversed, and, 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 and the glory then will be greater because of that. Just like good, the meaning of Good Friday changed totally when there was Easter Sunday, in the same way it's going to be in your life. One of my favorite authors is J.R. Tolkien, and, and in one of his articles, he's writing about legends and, and the power of fairy tales and, and why we're so moved by legends and these ancient stories. And he says the reason we're so moved is because those ancient fairy tales, those legends, draw their power from the great story of the gospel, the great story of God. And he says these words, and I quote, The gospel story hasn't abrogated legends. It has hallowed them, especially the happy endings. Let me say what? But happy endings, how is it, how are the happy endings? Well, think of it this way. If you believe this world is all there is, and then when you die, you rot. Okay, if that's what you guys came in here believe. If you believe that when you die, you rot, you know, and the sun is going to burn out, and so the whole solar system is going to collapse in and on itself, and we had a big bang, now we're going to have a big crunch, and everything is going to cease to exist, and so nobody who knows you now will know you then. In fact, they won't know themselves because they won't exist, and nobody will remember anything any of us ever did, and all of the noonday brightness of human genius will be forgotten, and it will all be meaningless. If that's what you believe, then when you watch a movie and it has a happy ending, Say, like, like, I, like, let's say you're watching a Hallmark movie. All right, and I've heard that they often have a happy ending. Like, I, I, like, I, don't, I haven't seen them. But I, it's, I, I, actually, I did see one. Uh, and I've been told if you've seen one. You, you just, you, anyway, <laughs> let's say you're watching a Hallmark movie and it's got a happy ending. Or you're reading a book, you're reading Lord of the Rings, and it's got a happy ending. If you believe that when you die, you rot, and this is all there is, then you have to look at that happy ending and say, the world's not like that. This is not the way life is. And that's why art critics, if you ever read their stuff, they hate happy endings. They hate, they constantly, I mean, if you read, the, they're like, oh, it's a happy ending. Ugh. So, you know, because, why? Because life's not like that. But if you're a Christian and you believe in the resurrection, every time you see a happy ending, you see that the world actually really is going to be like that, and you can accept happy endings with joy. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead, and that means your story will have a happy ending. 
about a month ago or whatever it was, I, I got a new car. And when you get a new car, a lot of times they, they give you uh, uh, like a 90-day free subscription to Sirius XM Radio. And so I got my free 90 days. And, and, and on the XM Radio, I've had it turned to the Kurt Franklin Praise Station. Right? And so yesterday, it was beautiful yesterday. The sun was shining. I was feeling good. Had the sunroof back. Had the windows down. Had Kurt Franklin Praise cranked up. And this song came on, Trouble Don't Last Forever. Have you ever heard that song? Okay, have any white people heard that song? Because I don't know. I don't know. I knew Aisha was going to say yes, but I. Guess what? Trouble don't last forever. Trouble is temporary. God's kingdom is forever. And there's coming a day where he's going to make every wrong right. How do we know that? The resurrection. See, there's two ways of looking at human history on Easter Sunday. You can, at first, you can look at it by just focusing on all the wars and violence and all the pain and tragedy and the death. And if you do that, Easter will seem like an exception. It'll seem like a stunning contradiction to the way the world works. But there's another way to look at the world. In the words of Philip Yancey, if I take Easter as the starting point, the one incontrovertible fact about how God treats those whom he loves, then human history becomes the contradiction and Easter a preview of ultimate reality. Listen to what he says. Hope then flows like lava beneath the crust of daily life. Why? Because he's risen. He's Lord and he's going to make every wrong right. That is why the resurrection is so important. But you guys, it's not enough for you just to know why the resurrection is important. You need to know that, right? We had to start there for why this is a big deal, why you're here today, why we're taking the time to talk about this, to sing about this Jesus, to, to worship this Jesus, to preach about this Jesus. You needed to know why, but knowing why won't change your life. Your life is changed when you encounter for yourself this risen Jesus. Now, here's what I know. There's a lot of people in here today, and, and a lot of you are going through a lot of different things. And you're coming from different situations. And some of you, man, it might be the sentence of death. It might be something else, some kind of hardship. I know I, I prayed with a lot of people over the last few weeks. And I know a lot of people are going through a lot of things. And I want to tell you the greatest gift you could get this morning is for you to meet the risen Jesus yourself. In fact, I want you to meet a few people who met the risen Jesus. John chapter 20. If you have your Bibles, look at John chapter 20 and 21 very quickly. Beginning in verse 10, says this, Then the disciples went back to their homes. So they had gone through the empty tomb. Peter and John ran. John wants to make sure you know he won the race. I mean, nobody cares, but John cares. Uh, he wants you to know he won the race. Peter goes in. They leave, and Mary Magdalene is still there. Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been. One at the head and the other at the feet. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. 
And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. First person I want you to meet who met the risen Lord was Mary Magdalene, the disillusioned. See, Mary Magdalene is a fascinating character in this story uh, because she is a whole lot like some of us who from time to time, especially during this pandemic, have felt a little disillusioned. I, I think you're probably a little bit like me. Over the course of the last year, uh, wrestling with some, some disillusionment with the government, <laughs> disillusionment with uh, the, the church in America, disillusionment with, with things that I think should be different. And when you have that, sometimes you're blinded by sorrow. Now, Mary Magdalene's real interesting. For a long time, at least since the 6th century, there was a guy named Pope Gregory I. He preached the sermon where he said that Mary Magdalene was the same Mary as Mary of Bethany in Luke chapter 7. And so since the 6th century, people have had this story going that, that Mary Magdalene had been a prostitute before she became a follower of Jesus. But there's really good reason to believe that the Mary of Bethany in Luke 7 is not Mary Magdalene. Here's what we do know about Mary Magdalene. Jesus cast seven demons out of her. Now, I don't know what that would be like to have seven demons in you, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that if you had seven demons in you and a guy comes along and casts them out, you're going to be grateful. And indeed, she was grateful. In fact, Luke 8 tells us that she helped finance Jesus' ministry. In Luke 8, we're told there's several women who financed Jesus' ministry. Mary Magdalene was one of them. She, Mary Magdalene, is mentioned more than almost any of the male disciples. I mean, Peter, James, and John are mentioned by name more often, but nobody else really is mentioned more than Mary Magdalene. She had a central role in the Gospels. In the Roman Catholic Church, her tithe, we're not a Catholic church, so the visitors know, uh, uh, but in the Roman Catholic Church, her title is Apostle to the Apostles because Jesus commissioned her to go tell the apostles that he was alive. So, so Mary Magdalene has quite a huge role in the story of the gospel. She knew Jesus really well. She spent time with him. She traveled with him. She supported him. And yet, in this story, she doesn't even recognize him. Why? I mean, you might say, well, it's because he had a resurrected body. You know, she wasn't expecting to. Maybe. Tim Keller has another reason in his book, Hope in fear, Times of Fear. He says this, in her mind, she has a narrative through which she was interpreting everything. They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. Because of this narrative, she failed to recognize the angels and even Jesus himself. Jesus and his salvation did not fit her expectations, which functioned like a filter or screen, making it impossible to see him right in front of her. Although she was looking right at him, she couldn't see him. In this, Mary represents the entire human race. No one seeks for God, Paul wrote in Romans 3.10, meaning not that no one seeks for the divine or the transcendent or for spirituality, but that no human being seeks the true God. 
We seek spirituality, but the human heart always wants a God who fits our desires, a God we can control, who doesn't challenge our self-assessments and narratives. Whatever Mary's idea was of Jesus at that moment, the figure standing before her did not fit it. The message of the Bible is that God never fits human categories and conceptions of what he should be. You guys... How many times have we been just like Mary? We got these expectations of the way. We have our own narratives that we put in this story that it should be this way. And here's the problem. God never fits in our box. And when we do that, when we try to put him in that narrative, we've got it the way. This is the way it's got to be. Sometimes we don't recognize him even when he's standing right there in front of us. Now, I want, I want you to look here. Look how Jesus deals with Mary. He, he doesn't, you know, she doesn't, he doesn't. She doesn't recognize him, but he doesn't come down hard on her. Unlike some of you, who when I'm at Costco and you've got a mask on, I don't recognize you. I'm walking by, and if I don't say hello, you punch me. I mean, how many times that happened to you? You're in Costco, you're in Kroger, somebody's got a mask. You don't recognize them because they got a mask on. But Jesus doesn't punch her and go, why didn't you recognize me? You didn't say hello. They doesn't do that. He doesn't come with the rebuke of a drill sergeant. He comes with the kind, careful questions of a counselor. Look at this. He says, why are you crying? Well, why was she crying? Because the narrative through which she was interpreting everything in her life was that Good Friday was the worst thing ever to have happened. She had an expectation. She had a narrative. The Messiah was going to come. He was going to set up his throne in Jerusalem. He was going to overthrow the Romans, and he was going to save just Israel. That was the picture she had. That was her narrative, and the Messiah didn't do it that way. More than that, just be married for just a second. This one that she loved so much, I mean, he had set her free from seven demons. She loved it. She had placed her treasure. She, she had financed his ministry. And now he's dead. She's grieving. She's blinded by sorrow. She's disillusioned. This is not the way I thought things would be. And I know there's probably a lot of people here right now, you, could, you maybe said that this week, I, did, I, did, I didn't think it would be this way. And sorrow can be paralyzing. It can blind us to the Jesus that's right in front of us. But then he doesn't leave her there. He asks another question. Who are you looking for? It's as if... Jesus is saying, are you looking for the real Jesus? Or are you just looking for your idea of who Jesus should be? Have you so built up this narrative of how it's supposed to be and so entered that story that I'm standing right in front of you and you can't even see me? I think Jesus on this Easter Sunday morning of 2021 might be asking you the same question. Who are you looking for? Who are you looking for? Are you looking for the real Jesus? Or the way you think it should be. And then in one of the most tender moments, uh, all the resurrection stories, perhaps in all of the gospel, Jesus just says her name. Mary. And instantly she knows it's him. And in a moment when she sees the risen Christ, all of her disillusion, all of her sorrow melts away. And then she gets commissioned. See, when you see the risen Jesus for yourself, he'll put you on a mission. 
See, <laughs> just like for Mary, he said, Mary, you can't stay here at the tomb. You got to go. And listen, if you meet the risen Jesus, he won't let you stay at the tomb either. It's okay if you came in here disillusioned. You don't have to leave that way. He'll send you on a mission when you meet the risen Jesus. That's the first person. The second person, much quicker, I promise. Verse 24. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So the second person I want you to meet, first we had Mary Magdalene, who was the disillusion. The second person is Thomas, who was the doubter. And I'm sure that there are people here today a lot like Thomas. I'm sure there's some people here today, you've got some doubts about whether or not Jesus really did get up out of the grave. You maybe have some doubts about whether or not there really is a God, or if he is a God of love, or if he loves you. There was a time in our culture when belief was kind of the default setting of the culture, but our culture isn't like that anymore. Ever since the so-called enlightenment, you, you, uh, before the so-called enlightenment, you kind of had to choose doubt, right? Now, you, you, the default setting is doubt, and you've got to choose to believe. And that's how our culture is. We're told it's cool to doubt, and so you might be here today, and, and you're doubting. You might have some doubts, but I want you to notice in this text Thomas, in this moment, in one moment, he moves from the deepest doubt among all the disciples to the highest profession of faith of anybody in the gospel. Did you notice that? When he meets the risen Jesus, he said in a second, my Lord and my God. Nobody else had called him God like that, which is astonishing. The biggest doubter becomes the greatest believer. How is that possible? When did that happen? When he met the risen Jesus himself. Listen, if you have doubts today, I, I would challenge you to examine the, the, the eyewitness evidence for the resurrection for yourself. It is formidable, uh, and, and it, is, it is, I think, completely compelling. Because the greatest doubter became the greatest believer in a moment. So if you're, you're doubting that, I would just, just look at the evidence. You might want to read a book by J. Warner Wallace called Cold Case Christianity. You may remember he was here, I don't know, four years ago or whatever it was, three or four years ago. Um, I guess it was three years ago. And uh, he was here. He was a homicide cold case detective, and he was an atheist into his 30s. Okay, so like up to, I don't know, 35 or something like that years old. He was an outspoken atheist until he was challenged to take the same rules of evidence and the same uh, method of investigation that he used on a cold case homicide and use that on the Gospels. And when he did that, he realized the evidence was there. This was eyewitness testimony. And he became a believer, and now he's an apologist for the faith. Here's my point. The evidence is there, and I believe it is compelling. But the greatest evidence is found when you bring your doubts to the risen Jesus, and you encounter him yourself. 
So we have Mary Magdalene, the disillusion, Thomas, the doubter, and the third is Peter, the failure. Now, a lot of people, when they read the end of the Gospel of John, they go, you know, why didn't John just end the Gospel in chapter 20 when, when, when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, like that would be a good place to stop. Don't you think? I mean, like, if, if I'm preaching in the next five minutes and, and, and you guys jump up and a uh, standing ovation, I'm, I'm done. I'm just going to say, thank you, Jesus. Let's take communion because, wow, it's going downhill from there. It, there's nowhere to go, right? And so when he says, my Lord and my God, why not just end it there? Well, here's what I think. I think Peter's encounter with the reason Jesus is one of the main points of the entire Gospel of John. So you know the story, they're out fishing, they don't catch anything. Jesus is on the shore, and he says, you caught anything? He says, hey, throw it on the right side of the boat, and then they catch all this fish, and the beloved disciple says, that's the Lord. Peter dives in the water, swims to the shore. I love Peter. Just a common guy, fisherman, you know, he doesn't have a Ph.D., at times he could be very humble, at times he could be very arrogant, but at times he could be very humble. In Luke chapter 5, when he realizes that, that, that Jesus is more than just a rabbi, he, he says, go away from me, I'm a sinful man. So he could be very humble like that. He, he, he declared who Jesus, when, when Jesus said in, in Mark chapter 8, who do you say I am? He says, you're the Christ. And in, in Matthew 16, G, or yeah, Matthew 16, Jesus said, I'm going to, on that declaration that I'm the Christ, Peter, I'm going to build my church. Peter declared his unwavering commitment to Jesus. Even if everybody else leaves, I'm not leaving. That same Peter that said all that good stuff, he also tried to rebuke Jesus. <laughs> like, what were you thinking, Peter? Like, I'm sure the other disciples were like, really? Like, you thought this was a good idea to rebuke Jesus? You know, and, and what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Four verses earlier, you're the Christ. And four verses later, get behind me, Satan. I mean, Peter fell asleep in the world's most important prayer meeting. And he woke up just in time to cut somebody's ear off. Because he was going for the He missed. He's trying to kill He must have missed, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, the whole love your enemies, turn your cheek thing. He must have missed that day. But Peter's crescendo of failure happens when he denied Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. And on the third time Peter denied Jesus, we are told, Mark chapter 14, verse 71, he cursed. Now, if you test NIV positive, which I do, uh, or if you read the ESV or the RSV, what the English translation will say, Peter cursed himself. Or call down a curse on himself. The Greek text actually says he cursed. And as I was doing some research on this uh, this week, some, a number of scholars that I trust completely uh, pointed out that from a literary perspective and a cultural perspective, it actually works best that, G, that when, when Peter is there, the text is actually saying he called down a curse on Jesus. I want you to let that in for a second. This is the most spectacular failure possible. See, in an honor and shame society like that, no true disciple would ever curse his leader, and yet that is exactly what Peter did. It's exactly what Peter did. 
In fact, later on in, in, in some of the other Roman emperors, when, when they were questioned, how do we know if somebody's a Christian or not? The, the answer was, tell them to curse Christ because a Christian would never curse Christ. And that's how the, the, the persecutors knew if they were a Christian or not. And yet, Peter does just that. Why? Because he wants to heat off himself. If I curse Jesus, they won't know that I was a follower of him. And now that he's done that, he knows I am no true disciple. So what do you think Peter is expecting to happen when he meets the risen Jesus, when he swims to shore and he comes out? The text says in verse 9 that, that well, one is Jesus whipping up some breakfast. That's one of the things I like about Jesus. He liked to eat. There are 19 meals in the Gospel of Luke alone. I don't know if you know that or not. There's, there's only 24 chapters or so, but there's 19 that Jesus liked to eat. Back to my point. Jesus has got, a, the text says, a charcoal fire. Chapter 21, verse 9. The last time we heard that there was a charcoal fire was chapter 18, verse 18. Does anybody remember where that was? Where people were warming their hands, where Peter was calling down a curse on Jesus. So what is Peter feeling? The last time he smelled that smell, we're, we're told that you know, the sense of smell is very closely tied to memory. What do you think he's feeling when he's smelling this charcoal fire? The last time he smelled that, he was cursing his Lord. Do you think he felt failure? Do you think he felt shame? Maybe some self-hatred like he didn't deserve to be called a disciple? Verse 15. And when they had finished eating, Again, Jesus never rebukes somebody on an empty stomach. <laughs> Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, I want you to notice what's happening here. It is beautiful, and it is breathtaking, and then we'll be finished. Jesus is restoring Peter once for every time he denied Jesus. Jesus is having Peter affirm his love for him, and as he affirms his love for Jesus, he's called to feed his sheep. See, when you fail spectacularly, you are tempted to take your failure as your identity. Like that's who you are. And Jesus says, you did that, Peter, but that's not who you are. And so how does he get him to believe that? By getting him to say, do you love me? And every time he said, you know I love you, Jesus is doing more than, he's, he's not saying, do you feel really bad right now? Do you feel bad? Because you should feel bad. No, he's trying to get Peter to confess what Jesus knew was really inside of him. Say it. I love you. And this is shocking stuff, man. He's not putting Peter on probationary status, which is what we would do. Right? Look, I'm going to forgive you, but I'm going to remind you of it. Whenever I get a chance. I'm going to forgive you, but I'm not going to let you all the way in. You know, like, we'll see. We'll, like, see what you're going to do. You know, I don't know. 
He is being forgiven. He is being given a place of leadership. This is incredible. Listen, you guys, maybe you're here today and you're wrestling with shame because you haven't just messed up. You have sinned spectacularly. And that failure has a way of trying to become an identity for you. Let me tell you something. You can meet the risen Jesus just like Peter did. And in that meeting of the risen Jesus and you confess your love for him, he will remind you of who you are and who you are not. I mean, you can be fully forgiven. Scripture says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The psalmist said, bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all your sins. Not just probationary status. Scripture says he removes your sins. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he moved our transgressions from us. He says he has cast our iniquities in the depths of the sea. And on a number of occasions, three that I can think of, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Hebrews, he says, I will remember your sin no more. Oh. That's good news. That's really good news. As the hymn writer uh, Samuel Gandhi said, I love this, oh, I love this. He says, well may the accuser roar of ills that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. I should have got way more amens out of that one. That was way better than you responded. I wish I had written that. Because that's me. Truth is, truth is, you guys, if I can just be honest with you, I have been Mary Magdalene. I've been the disillusioned. I, I, I have been the, the Thomas, the one wrestling with doubts. I've been the Peter who's failed spectacularly. And you know what? Probably so have you. And maybe you're in one of those places right now. Bring your sorrow to Jesus. Bring your doubts to Jesus. Bring your failures to the risen Jesus and meet him this morning. Let's pray.